Hey, hey, Housers. Welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. I am your host, Michael Braithway, and I hail from the great organization just north of Toronto, Blue Door. Blue Door is doing incredible work supporting our most vulnerable in the areas of York, in Durham, in Peel. Check out the work that that fun team is doing at bluedor.ca. And listen, we do this in partnership with the Canadian Alliance on Homelessness. You may have heard of them. They do incredible national advocacy work. Um, and they have a massive conference coming up in Halifax in November. It's not too late to sign up. It is the best of the best. Uh, so many great speakers, a couple thousand people there. It's going to be a good time. And we're going to learn and share lots. So check that out at caeh.ca among that's one of uh, many things that they're doing. Let's talk about today's guest. We have multiple guests today. Today we have Badupe, we have Nimoy, and we have Cecile on, and they are from the Hogan's Alley Society, and they did an incredible research project that they come on to talk about. They're going to be presenting this at the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness Conference, so they give us a bit of a taste today, and I, I encourage you to sign up for it. It's fascinating. Um, they do a research project. It is titled uh, Mitigating Barriers to Safe and Affordable Housing, for uh, black communities. Uh, and they talk about how this came about. They talk about how they put it all together, the methodology around it. And then we talk about, hey, what were the learnings? What were the key learnings? And there was many. Were there any surprises? There were some surprises. Not, and they talk about, like, it wasn't so much surprising, but, you know, also confirming uh, what they thought and the, the data around it uh, and what their hopes are uh, moving forward with this amazing research and data. Uh, incredibly talented and brilliant group of uh, individuals. I so enjoy talking with them and learning more about uh, their journeys into this work and this important, impactful research. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let's go to that conversation. Cecile, so glad to have you here on the podcast. Thanks for making the time. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Thank you for having us. Look at that. You work so close together. You are in unison. <laughs> said that that's amazing that's the chemistry of this team and we're going to talk about your incredible work uh and what you're going to be presenting at the conference before we get to that um we ask everyone this question and listen cecile has a bit of an advantage because she's answered it before so i don't know if her answer will be same or different and she's learned some new things and it's very personal there's no right or wrong and that is what does home mean to you we're going to start with madupe and then go to nimoy and then we'll finish with cecile so home goes beyond the four walls of a house or of a building. For a home to a black person, it means a place where they feel loved, where they feel supported, where they can be themselves without any form of restrictions and where they can achieve their goals, their dreams, their aspirations, where they can go to, like where they can return from work and just feel loved and supported physically. So it's beyond the, the, the four buildings, it's beyond just having a roof over your head. It, it's, it's where you feel loved and supported. Love that. Nimoy? I, so I think just echoing and similar to similar sentiments to what Madhuka is saying, um, for me, a home is more than just a place that just provides shelter from the elements. It's a place where uh, people build memories. It's a it's a place of refuge and where um, people can you know go home and not have to worry about the world around them. Um, but it's also a place that helps to provide stability in certain circumstances um, because in certain places, um, you know, some people might have a home but doesn't feel like a home. So for me, definitely uh, a home is more than just a place that provides shelter for the elements. Mm -hmm. well, those are great answers. I'm not sure if I have more to add to that, but it's very similar what a home means to me, like Madupe and, and Nimoy have stated already, it's more than just a physical structure. It really means a place that you feel loved and connected, a place that you feel welcomed, a place you feel safe. Safety is a huge piece for, for how I view a home. And it's a place that you can actually be yourself and be proud of who you are, knowing that you are part of a family or and even larger than that, part of a community. You're connected with a group of people, whether they're from your background or not, but a group of people that accept and love you for who you are and really empower you and support you to achieve whatever it is your ambitions are. 
So a home is really not just a place that provides that safety or that stability, but also a place that you feel that you belong and you're connected. Amazing. All fantastic answers, all ringing of truth. Um, you know, there is a common theme among all our answers with most people that come on. And it's not about the physical structure, right? And I think, uh, Nemo, you said you can have that physical structure and it cannot be a home for all those reasons all of you mentioned. And let's get to know all of you a little bit more. But no one really usually goes to, uh, you know, when they're when they're four, as Cecile has a four-year-old, or uh, Majipe has a 18-month-old, they're not dreaming right now of going into research or <laughs> into housing or homelessness. It's not usually where kids start. So where that journey starts, we want to learn a little bit more about all of you. And I know you've chatted already. So whoever wants to, who you decide is going to go first, tell us just a little bit about your uh, journey into this work and who you are. Okay, I'll, I'll go first. Um, so I, I'm, I'm actually an internationally trained dentist from Nigeria, and I migrated to Canada for my master's in public health, this, um, public health because I noticed the great disparity between the rich and the poor. Like it was um, just a, it's just a very wide continuum between like the well-to-dos and the people that are not really um supported in the society so i came for that and after i finished i had that degree at simon fraser university and after i finished that i started work with organzali society and where in particular we've been focusing on housing as a social determinant of health and that has been um the the that's been a great opportunity for me because I've been in a very good position to kind of like advocate for black people, support them in different ways. Um, we do some community engagement work with the black community and um, do some research. And beyond just doing research, we try to make sure that we don't just do research and, shel and put the results on our shelves. We kind of make sure that we, we put the results out there send out opinion brief, send out briefing notes, attend conferences and presentations to really have a conversation, um, conversation on the experiences of black people in the community. So that's been what we've been doing so far, um, or what I've been doing so far as, a, as my position as the research director at Organizali Society. And of course, that was how we kind of got into this particular um, topic that we are going to be discussing today. So um, to also emphasize the fact that we noticed the rising cost of rental housing in Metro Vancouver, and we really wanted to map out the challenges that black people have been experiencing when it comes to getting into affordable housing or accessing accessible housing as well so that was when we kind of came up with a team of researchers um we had a consultant as well wood buffalo strategy group and we have been doing this work yeah amazing thanks for very cool thanks for sharing the journey um who would like to go next Nimoy, cecile i can i can go next so, everyone's so polite yeah <laughs> we want to give each other a chance to speak. Um, just like you talked about, Michael, it's very interesting that you mentioned that, that we don't go back to our childhood. And that's a very, very important thing to do because in my doctoral studies, they actually make us think about our childhood and really go back on this journey of reflective practitioners where we think about how what led us to the point we're at right now. And for me, when I've had some time to think about this, actually, throughout my my um, my candidacy and housing has always been a passion. It's always been a very stable thing for me. And this really stems from my childhood growing up in Nigeria. So I'm Nigerian like Madupe is. And during my childhood, my family and I experienced a number of displacements. And we so were displaced. We lost our homes on several occasions. We lost our community. We really felt that we didn't belong until the community embraced us and we were able to find a community again. 
And eventually, so this happened throughout my childhood, really, when I was younger. However, eventually, my parents really worked hard to make sure that we didn't have those experiences again. And so they got to a point where they were able to provide housing for other people, to develop rental properties for other people. And I remember thinking, wow, this is great, because then that those can become income properties. But then my parents telling me, no, they're actually not for income. They're for helping others that were in similar situations as us. And that really, I remember as a kid thinking, doesn't make sense to me. But <laughs> later on, I, fi I figured out what they were talking about. Fast forward to coming to Canada as an international student. I experienced a lot of challenges finding housing. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a co-signer. I didn't have previous rental history in Canada. So no landlord was willing to, to <laughs> rent to me. So the only available choice for me was to go and rent on campus. And as we know, housing on campus is extremely expensive and very not sustainable for a lot of international students. But one thing that really cemented my career path was taking a course in affordable housing. And what, uh, one of the topics that we discussed was indigenous housing and homelessness and watching a video of an on reserve housing conditions that indigenous people are experiencing, what their experiences were and how dire those housing conditions were really shocked me. I couldn't believe it was in Canada. I couldn't believe that this was Canada. Indigenous people were experiencing these. And that was really what cemented my career path. So I have been in the field for about 15 years and I have worked with nonprofit organizations mostly and worked, I've progressed from frontline service provider, working with clients, providing housing supports to leadership positions, influencing systems. And now I am a consultant. I primarily work with indigenous and black communities. And that is something that really holds, is near and dear to my heart based on my personal experiences, but really understanding the challenges on a, on a different level. I'm able to provide the supports that they need to, for us to move towards access and equitable housing. I'll pass it on to Nimoy. Wow, that's uh, that's a that's a journey. Um, for myself, <laughs> uh, for myself, like I think you know, it, and it's interesting that you you asked to go back to the childhood. Um, you know, going back to my childhood, similar to um, Cecile, like you know, I remember growing up um, and you know seeing my mom struggle with um, housing affordability. Um, and especially when we first immigrated to uh, immigrated to Canada from Jamaica, um, housing was very unaffordable, um, and especially on a single income. And um, you know, seeing uh, growing up and seeing the challenges that you know my mother was going through, you know, housing became like a, a huge passion for me to understand um, how people um, were accessing affordable, secure, and adequate housing. Um, and um, sort of um, when I got into my undergrad, um, I, I took a, a, a course on suburbanization um, in Canada or suburbanization in North America. Um, and I was uh, uniquely interested um, when the professor was um, showing all these um, particular slides of different develop, uh, suburban developments across North America. And I remember I raised my hand and I said, uh, where are all the black people in all these pictures? Um, and, and she said, "Well, you're you're jumping ahead with the with your question." And uh, from there, I was really interested um, to understand how um, uh, access to housing um, in North American housing market and learning about that history um, um, in the North American context, and especially in an era, um, in an era. Um, especially in the civil rights era and especially even prior to that um, as well. Um, and from there, um, you know, my interest in housing really peaked and I went on to pursue a master's degree um, in where um, I examined the subprime mortgage crisis in the U.S. and its impacts on the African-American communities um, in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and, you know, I was, I was really interested in how, um, you know, seeing how black people went um, and considered as a risk and beyond the pale of investment um, and then became the prime targets of these predatory types of investments in the community. Um, and from there, um, I went on to work for 
uh, a number of different employers, including um, uh, a commercial real estate firm and CMHC, um, in where um, I was able to, um, you know, put my skills to test um, and work in in the Canadian context, but you know, didn't stay there for too long, and I, I wanted to I wanted a new challenge, and as such, I pursued a PhD. Um, and where I wanted to learn more about the aftermath of the subprime mortgage crisis um, in 2008. And I pursued a PhD in human geography um, and uh, where my research looked at the foreclosure crisis and its impact on the African-American community in Chicago, Illinois, and Jacksonville, Florida. Um, and, you know, from there, I had a mentor that said, you know, you're, you live in Canada, um, you're um, you grew up in Canada, you know, why not try to study these issues in the, in the Canadian context? And um, I took his advice. And from there, I, uh, I started to explore the financialization of rental housing um, across Canada in markets such as Toronto or the greater Toronto area, uh, Montreal, Ottawa, and Vancouver. Um, and sort of this what led me to, um, you know, research uh, research the financialization of rental housing um, in the Metro Vancouver context. Wow. This, this might be the most talented and educated uh, panel we've ever had on this show. Uh, so amazing. Uh, just incredible. And thanks for sharing your journeys. Really appreciate that. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the Hogan's Alley Society. What can you tell us about them? Okay, um, I would go. So, Organzali Society is a non governmental organization that advocates for Black people generally living in Vancouver and across Canada. But Black people in particular who have endured the displacement that occurred due to the urban renewal program of the government. Um, so, we used to have an Hali called Organzali then, in like about like many years ago, but it was kind of cleared for the um, construction of a twin viaduct that ran just ran over the community. And at that time, the black community was like we were closely knitted together in Vancouver. It used to that area used to be a like the happening place for black people. We had music, we had food, like everyone felt loved um, in a closely knitted community at the time. But since the displacement, black people have been like in different parts of the province and we've not really had um, a community for black that we can call specifically for black people ever since then. So Hogan's Ali is a society that kind of like came together to be able to advocate for the needs of these people and kind of restore that community that we had those like a long time ago. Okay, so um, it's an organization, but we have like three major pillars and one of them is housing, development and um, community engagement. So under housing, housing is now like divided into some sub programs. In our housing program, we have Nora Hendricks Place Transition. We have our community care program and then under the community care program, we have the cultural support program. So we realized that we don't really have a cultural center for black people where they can display their culture because, of course, we are, should I say, we, we are culturally diverse uh, people. So we, we have the cultural program where we try to promote the culture of the black people promotes um, the display of our traditions and things like that. We also have the garden program, um, which is an opportunity to, to grow and cultivate um, like cultural foods as well. And that way we make it accessible and affordable to the black people because of course that's an um, healthier food option for us. And then we also have the housing support program where we help black people in need of um, support to help with housing emergencies, like people that are in an abusive situation, people that are at the risk of being evicted from their homes, people that need help to pay bills, or people that need support um, with their rent due to the rising cost of 
of rent in Vancouver. As we know, like Vancouver is the most expensive place to live in Canada at the moment. Okay, so under our development program, we have the Community Land Trust. Uh, and um, for that, we um, the organization signed a memorandum of understanding with the city. And then we have been allocated a block in Vancouver where we intend to use for the construction of affordable housing units for black people and also to construct a cultural center as well. And then on the community engagement, that's where this research comes in because it, it's in research that we actually engage with black people, we engage with service providers, we engage with um, different stakeholders. And then we also have a couple of research that the organization runs as well. And that includes um, COVID-19 vaccine intention survey and some other um, upcoming ones. So that's... Um, the structure of the organization right now. We have our executive director, um, Jacka Blay. We also have other managers in the organization, Udokam, Ella, and Bontley, as well as Siobhan that manages the community care program. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart. Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Amazing. And as you said, uh, most of you want to be number one not when it comes to being number one with the most unaffordable uh, rental housing and housing costs in Canada. Uh, and I know that Vancouver and Toronto are always neck and neck for that uh, uh, unprestigious <laughs> title, but it, it, it's super challenging. And we, we had a guest a while back, uh, Keir uh, McDonald, who was talking about just, you know, when people, individuals used to receive social assistance from government, you might be able to rent a room, mm. say in Vancouver, Toronto, and now that's not even possible, right? I know in the GTA, Greater Toronto area, it's a bit, well, in Ontario, it's uh, individual receives $700 a month. Um, mm -hmm. And to rent a room in this area, in the GTA, it's about $1,000 a month, shared mm -hmm. kitchen, washroom. So it, my team at Blue Door, my day job, uh, we talk about when, when people come into the shelter and that's the situation, even if they're receiving disability of about $1,200 a month, it is a mm -hmm. tough, tough go. Um, but like, and, and I'm, I'm telling people that know this, right? You're doing incredible work uh, and very important work. And the three of you, and maybe more, took part. You you did some research and you put together something as mitigating barriers to safe and affordable housing for Black communities. Uh, can you talk to me about how this research came about um, and how you went about it? How did you start it? Okay, uh, maybe I'll, I will um, start on how the research came about and then um, I would pass it over to Cecile thereafter. Okay, so like I was saying earlier, due to the rising cost of rent in Metro Vancouver and the seemingly, the obvious difficulty of black people to really access housing, the challenges they face, the discrimination they face when it comes to really getting a place to stay and just having a roof over their head. We saw the, the difficulty, we saw that people were reaching out with, um, with great need, great challenge um, when it comes to getting a, a house, getting a place to stay. And this was even worsened by the COVID-19 pandemic as well. So um, the organization put together a team, we we kind of like um, got a consultant, Wood Buffalo Strategy Group, to work exactly on this project because we really wanted to understand what is causing the issue, what are the factors that are implicated in, in this issue because it seemed like it wasn't getting any better, it was just getting worse as time passes. And then we also got... Um, the researchers on the call today, Cecile and Nemoy, to help us work with the project. So for the project, we 
we have the research phase as well as the development phase. So for the research phase is what we're going to be discussing essentially today. But the development phase is where we have um, the design component as well as the prototype phase. So at the prototype phase, we kind of like create a roadmap of interventions. We talk to stakeholders, we talk to black people in the community, we organize workshops to be able to further understand their problems and also come up with um, feasible solutions that could work and that could really help us um, kind of like solve the issue. And the prototype phase is still ongoing at the moment, but we are looking at wrapping it up in December by the end of this year. But that's, that's how we, we decided to really look into this research because black people in Vancouver, like we, we all need help, yeah, especially when it comes to housing. So I'll pass it over to Cecile. Yes, thank you, Madupe, for that introduction. That's essentially how the project came about and really the recognition that the historical events that have happened, the displacement of Black communities across Canada, especially in this case, Hogan's Alley, has really left a far-reaching impact, an impact that has continued to affect Black communities and in which we don't even know the, the, the level of the impact on Black communities. We haven't studied this in depth. And so Hogan's Alley coming together and pulling together people from our community to really study this was in, incredibly crucial and something that I'm really honored to be a part of. And so I was pulled into this project because of my background in housing and homelessness, but also because of my doctoral studies, I'm working on identifying anti-Black racism and really coming up with solutions as to how to tackle anti-Black racism in the housing sector, knowing that that's not something that we talk about in Canada and not to talk about the housing sector. We don't mention anti-Black racism, really. But the research components really received, we went through an ethics approval process and were able to receive um, approval from the Community Research Ethics Office. And so we employed both a quantitative and qualitative research methodologies. This was very important and very smart, and very intelligent and on Hogan's Alley's part, because a lot of the times we focus on maybe qualitative or quantitative, and rarely do we do both. So this really tapped into both methodologies. And so our research focus, I was the one that led the uh, qualitative research methodologies, and Dr. Nimoy was the lead of the quantitative research methodology. So for the qualitative research methodology, our focus was really on exploring the experience of Black Vancouverites in accessing and also maintaining rental housing, as well as identifying what their affordable housing needs are. We also investigated how government policies and practices have really contributed or may have contributed to housing hardships for Black communities with a focus on systemic and structural barriers. Another area of focus was to identify innovative solutions. This was very important for the community to actually drive this and identify what solutions would work Within, with a Black community in Metro Vancouver. And so to answer our research questions, we really employed four methodological approaches. And this was important because we recognize community engagement is something that doesn't really, is not necessarily done within Black communities. And there are challenges to that because we've been marginalized and oppressed historically, and we continue to experience those challenges. However, our four methodological approaches were a Vancouver-wide online survey. Madupe really led, led this because of she's, um, she lives in Vancouver and I'm in Calgary. So I really leaned on her to help with, the, with crafting this and, and engaging Black Vancouverites who are renting to really respond to this, this um, Vancouver-wide online survey. And the purpose was really to gather data on what their experiences, their lived and living experiences with accessing and maintaining housing is. And the survey really, it was a quite detailed survey. It, it covered a number of categories. I wouldn't go into it. It's something that you can check. We can, you can look at in the report, but it mostly covered the demographics, really understanding what the, who the black communities are. It talked about housing types. Where do they usually live? Is it private market? Is it subsidized housing? What are the, their household compositions? What, how many members of the household are they typically and dwelling satisfaction and dissatisfaction and concerns. We talked about forced moves because that was an issue in Vancouver. We also talked about home ownership. What are their aspirations for home ownership? And of course, housing discrimination, understanding that there are systemic barriers that are at play here that cause challenges for black communities to access housing. 
And the next methodological approach that we engaged in was key informant interviews. It was important for us to balance this, to understand the lived experiences, but to also engage sector professionals. So people that are policymakers, housing providers, housing service deliverers, to really understand what their role is and to understand what the policies and practices are and how this may be perpetuating systemic and structural barriers. The third approach was focus group. This was really, and we added this on because we noticed that when we got the survey back, we realized that specific groups weren't represented in the survey. So we wanted to make sure that our approach was accessible. It was convenient to certain target groups who may have limited capacity. It might be language barriers. It might be they don't have access to computers or internet. And so we targeted the new immigrant and refugee population and also seniors to really get to know who they are and what their challenges are. And we also incentivize them to partake in this, in this project. And so that was very key to our project because we're able to understand how their experiences may vary from the larger population of black communities. And the last methodological approach, which I would say is something that I really enjoyed because of the design component of it, um, it was a co-design workshop. The purpose of this was really to bring together all the stakeholders, to bring together the sector professionals, the policymakers, the service deliverers, housing providers, as well as have people with lived and living experiences partake in this. And the purpose was really to drive this process, for them to come up with the solutions, to chart the problems and the challenges, to identify shared priorities, and also what innovative solutions could we identify, recommend that would really help to resolve this issue, at least start to tackle this issue. So the idea of co-designing solutions really fostered the mantra of nothing about us without us. So that was very important that the Black communities lead this. And it was also really very beneficial to have the sector professionals at, at the table because they got the opportunity to hear from Black community members as to what the challenges are and what needs to be done and how the policies and practices have been impacting them. And it was also an opportunity to hold them accountable to do something about it. That just like Madupe talked about, this research cannot just be shelved and collect dust. We need to have the players on board, committed and held accountable to make change. So I'll pass it on to Nimoy. Well, thank you for that, uh, Cecile. That was very detailed. <laughs> um, I think, I think for myself, like, you know, one of the things and how I came on board was largely because due to my expertise and studying uh, various types of landlords in the market to better understand um, what are their influences um, on the market in terms of um, uh, in terms of the rents that they're charging in terms of their displacement strategies or their eviction practices um, um, in in trying to understand how particular entities are shaping the lived experiences and the neighborhood choices. Uh, that uh, Black Canadians have it within the market. Um, so in approaching this, um, a few things that we did, um, so, like I participated as well in some of those key informant interviews because it was important for us to get context. Um, it was important for us to get context and history of the market itself. And so, um, and also it was important for us to get data. Um, so. Um, part of my job was to uh, to study the market. So what we did was um, we acquired um, multifamily transactional data in the Metro Vancouver area for the last 25 years. Um, and so we um, examined um, um, acquisitions um, in the market for the last 25 years. Um, and then what we did was we cleaned the data and added various different variables for us to understand um, the different landlords that um, could potentially be influencing um, the lived experiences of Black renters in the market. And so to do that, um, we um, categorized their data from, um, you know, who's a private investor, Canadian numbered company, uh, governments who provide non-market housing, non-profits, um and financialized landlords and you know there's a lot of talk within the news and in the media about you know the impact and the influence of financialized landlords 
for us and for this project, we define financialized landlords as a purchasing company, either privately held, so these could be asset management firms, private equity firms, or even uh, publicly traded REITs, which uh, could also be a private REIT, um, who acquires rental properties at scale and applies financial logics, metrics, and priorities in order to deliver um, returns to shareholders, unit holders, and uh, investors. Um, and what differs these types of landlords from your everyday mom and pop type landlord, as I mentioned, is scale and their access to um, a team of lawyers and uh, portfolio analysts that help them to circumvent uh, some of the uh, landlord and tenancy um, rules within the market and rules within particular jurisdictions in order to uh, deliver what I call unprecedented returns to these unit holders and shareholders. And so these categories of landlords includes private equity firms, asset management firms, REITs, as I mentioned, and even our own very own Canadian public pension funds, um, which I could get into later, um, and also insurance companies. Um, so we also subdivided um, the uh, the data uh, the data into different uh, landlord subtypes. So as I mentioned, um, you know, um, we categorized the what you know what is a financialized landlord. So uh, private equity firms, asset management firms, REITs, um, and insurance companies. Um, but we also um, categorized the data based on. Uh, the year of construction of all of the properties that um, were being acquired. And part of the reason why we did that um, is we wanted to understand the, uh, whether the behaviors of the landlords are different in different geographies, um, considering the work that we've already done in other jurisdictions. And so um, we also wanted to know um, whether um, uh, a bulk of the properties that were that were being acquired by financialized landlords were post-war uh, uh, purpose-built rentals. So these essentially are properties that were either built before the 1970s and 1980s. And part of the reason is because these are the properties that have the largest rent gaps in them. And what I mean by that is these are properties um, that where you have long-standing tenants that are paying well below market rent, um, and so it's the gap between what's currently being charged and what could be potentially charged um, with um, some investments and improvements uh, to the property itself. Um, and so when I talk about multifamily data, these are um, any unit uh, that was above um, four, uh, four units or more. Incredible, incredible work. Um, and I'm sure, I mean, I can't even imagine all the work that went into analyzing all the data that continues coming back because there'll be a lot. I'm going to ask you a three-prong question to the group, uh, and that is, you know, what were kind of, what were your biggest learnings? What were the biggest surprises? And what are your hopes for this information? Madupe said not to sit on a shelf. Absolutely, right? We don't. It's not what we do research. So thanks for letting us know. You want action, but want to learn your biggest learnings. Any surprises and that, because sometimes you, it confirms what you know, but what are the surprises? And finally, what are your hopes for this uh, information moving forward? Uh, okay, let me, let me. <laughs> Do you want me to start? Or? Yeah, I can I'll go see. if you guys, okay, I, I can go. Or Cecile, you can start. Okay, I'll start. <laughs> okay, um, first key learnings. It was a very, well, the process of gathering the data and analyzing it, like you can imagine, was quite daunting and took a lot of time, but it was a lot of data that we need to know. And after the analysis took place, we were able to pull themes from what we, we um, got from the community, and we really had six themes that emerged. And I wouldn't go into all of it, but affordable housing, which we all know, lack of housing options. But with affordable housing challenges, one thing that really was jarring was that not only do a lot of Black renters spend upwards of 30% of their income on rent, a number of them spend 70% of their income on rent. 
which is, I mean, I can't even imagine how they're surviving, but we know that it's unsustainable and it really does impact them because they're not able to live in desirable neighborhoods. They have been forced into unsafe neighborhoods and places as far from the amenities that they access. And this is impacting their mental health and their physical well-being. Another area that was really touched on that came up every time was housing discrimination. Housing discrimination was something that was very prevalent across the board with everyone we spoke to. It was the acknowledgement that housing discrimination is really a part of the landscape in Vancouver. And unfortunately, absolutely nothing is being done about it. A lot of the respondents, about 60% responded that they have experienced housing discrimination. But one thing that we, we think that this number is actually higher because when we had our focus group engaging people in person, we asked the question of housing discrimination and the response was no, because people were afraid if they were to say something, it might come back to them and they might get evicted. There might be repercussions to them responding honestly. Um, so we think that the number is higher, but we also noticed that about 92% of respondents refused to even report it. One, because they thought that there was nothing that was going to happen. And the second is because there wasn't anywhere to report it. They didn't know where to go and where to access help. So really these individuals are suffering and they have no help and it's not something that's being addressed. Another key area was the lack of black enclaves like Madupe talked about. It was really the lack of having a neighborhood or a community, a center where black people can come together to celebrate their shared heritage, to ce celebrate their culture, to support each other and to assist each other in whatever challenges and to also celebrate the successes that they were experiencing. So having a lack of black enclaves really isolated black Vancouverites and made them feel separated and siloed. The discriminatory housing policies and practices is something that. I would say if you're talking about surprises, not maybe a surprise, but also something that was with someone we knew that was happening, but it was good to get this data. The challenge that we saw was that there's a complete lack of consideration for racial equity when creating housing policies. Black people aren't at the table. Black people's voices aren't heard. We're not meaningfully engaged in the development of these policies or decision-making. And that's something that has really impacted Black communities as we've seen. And this was across the board. It was federally, it was provincially, it was also municipally, where Black people weren't engaged and we, our voices weren't heard in the development of these policies. And also the lack of race-based data. Across the board, there's a lack of disaggregated race-based data. And this is really hurting the Black communities because it's also a form of erasure. If our voices aren't heard, then we're not planned for it and we're not even we're not even acknowledged. Nothing is done for us. So this is something that is an issue that needs to be rectified. Um, another surprise that we heard was really about, I think for me, as, as an immigrant, we are always told that we have this belief that higher education leads to better job prospects and higher salaries. However, we noticed that a lot of the respondents, about 73% had university degree or a college diploma. They were educated. But about over 40% of them earned less than $50,000. So it really went against that belief that we commonly hold. And this was really largely attributed to the systemic racism that they experience across sectors in the job market. And it was really looking at these systemic interactions and these discrimination that Black Vancouverites experience at every sector and how these interactions converge and create pathways to housing stability and homelessness for Black individuals in Metro Vancouver. So this was a, a Something that we thought, wow, this is, we really need to rectify this and we really need to work on it. In terms of my hopes, um, I would say we've already gone through this in terms of we need change. However, as I go through my journey with working in this sector and working with racialized communities, it's very important for us to really acknowledge racism and discrimination, acknowledge that it is embedded in our society, it is embedded in our history that has really paved the way for contemporary inequities that racialized communities face. And this is now written in policies. It's how we practice. Black individuals are not getting the services that they need because of just by being Black. 
they don't get those services. And that's something that came out in the research. So it's something that we really need to address. So we need to raise the awareness of it. And we really need to prioritize and empower Black communities to lead the process. And I'll leave it at that. Okay, maybe I should take it up from there. Thank you, Cecile. Yeah, so building on what Cecile said, um, aside from the fact that many people reported housing discrimination due to race, one, a group that was unique, and that shows the intersectionalities within the Black community. So a group that was unique is uh, the single mothers. So single mothers also have their own unique experience, and that's the fact that landlords do not are not willing to rent to them. So one of them reported having to go with a son to be able to rent a home. So, so the landlord assumed that the son was a husband like the man of the house and then was able to give her the home so we have a couple of women reporting that that first of all it's not even affordable for them and second of all if if they even have the money and approach this landlords landlords are not willing to rent out to them so that's like um something that was also surprising like not just the fact that you are black the fact that like different layers of discrimination the fact that you're black and then a single mother you also have to even face worse um discrimination as well and then the other thing was the fact that those people that live in affordable housing units housing homes just about 13 percent of them reported that their houses were accessible that's um wheelchair accessible now when um to to explain further so um and then building on accessibility when we had the focus group discussions with um new immigrants and refugees many of them also attested to the fact that it's very difficult to find an affordable accessible home in in metro vancouver so they they've been on the wait on the wait list for affordable housing for a couple of years and there's still no accessible housing especially to meet their unique family situation so that was that's really um kind of like stood out for me because they usually they right now they live in a place with a fleet of stairs and usually have to carry um those um one of their family members on wheelchair like up the, the the stairs which is of course not comfortable and should not even be um should not even be heard of to say the least and then the other um thing that stood out for me was the fact that at the moment there's no government office that is responsible for actually attending to this complaint like first of all like Cecil said people don't complain because there's really no office to report to. And even if um, they, they report, the processes to um, go through is kind of long and lengthy and people just like drop it along the way. So we don't have like an office that is dedicated to really listening to these stories, really re to really listening to the experiences of black people. So um, because we spoke to um, representative of different governments um government offices and many of them uh, reported that they just don't have the capacity or the fact that they have other priorities at the moment um and then my hopes for this study is like i said we we want to ensure that we don't just shelve the results we want to ensure that we keep having a conversation about it we're going to be sharing our our results um in different conferences across the country and we are also going to be posting our results um, on our website to make sure that people have access to it and then we are also going to continue to speak to government officials and we really do hope that they they kind of be accountable and really do something because black people need more affordable um, homes, they need more affordable units, more affordable and accessible and safe housing units in Vancouver. And I'll pass it over to Nemoy. Uh, thank you for that, Madhuri. Um I think for myself, there was, a, I think there's a lot of uh, key learnings that, you know, sort of surprised me, and but sort of didn't. I think one of the ones after looking at um, some of the, um, so Statistics Canada and CMHC provided us with custom tabulations 
um, in to evaluate um, uh, the visible minority rental population within the Metro Vancouver area for us to have a better understanding uh, with respect to who are the who are some of the most rent burden groups within the Metro Vancouver area, and we felt that uh, Black renters are among um, uh, some of the most rent burden groups in the Metro Vancouver area. And to do this, we looked at um, uh, shelter cost to income ratio, um, and where we looked at. Um, what is the percentage of you know various households types that were paying more than thirty percent of their income on shelter? Um, so, to begin, we we saw a consistency over the, the two census periods that we studied, which was twenty sixteen and twenty twenty one, and where we saw that the um, the Metro Vancouver rental population was consistently around six percent of the total visible minority population. But interesting, though, we found that a significant share of the um, the Black renter population in Metro Vancouver were spending more than 30% of their income on shelter. For instance, in 2016, we found that 40% of the total rental population in the, in the Metro Vancouver area was paying more than 30% of their income on shelter. Um, you know, granted, in 2021, uh, there was a slight decrease in where it went it went down from 40% to 30%. Um, you know, we don't have um, enough data to, to say, you know, why such a, a decrease of 10%, uh, why the decrease of 10%. Our only hypothesis that we're going with, or we're, we're leaning towards is um, some of the uh, emergency federal subsidies that were provided during the pandemic and where um, folks were, I think they were getting $2,000 each month. Um, and even at $2,000 each month, the folks were still, um, were a significant portion of that income was still going towards shelter. Um, and so um, as Cecile alluded to earlier, um, you know, when you think about, you know, households that are paying, you know, roughly over 50%, 60%, 70% of their income, it begs you to wonder what impacts or what sacrifices that households are making in order to remain housed in, in, in geographies like Metro Vancouver and where are they sacrificing meals? Are they sacrificing personal care items? Or for some of our seniors um, and where some of their medication are not covered under the um are not covered under health insurance. And as such, you know, those have to be out of pocket expenses. Um, and so you make begs you to wonder how, how you know, some of our folks that are, are seniors that are on a fixed income and whether they're foregoing desperately needed medication in order to make sure that they have, uh, their, uh, have the, the amount of um, income that or money that they need in order to pay their rent each month. Um, another, um, Thing that uh, another finding that was striking to us was um, was the fact that to see over the last twenty years um, that financialized landlords have accounted for forty percent um, of all the transactions um, between the period of 1990, uh, 1999 and the end of twenty twenty two, but for the twenty year period we saw from two thousand uh, similar um, from two thousand and two to twenty twenty two. Um, and where 40% of the market, 40% uh, of the transactions were acquired. Um, and this is based on the units um, that were acquired by financialized landlords. Um, we feel that that's most likely an undercount because of the fact that um, a lot of these types of companies use subsidiaries and ambiguous names, um, such as, you know, one, two, three, um, you know, um, Weston Inc. or one two three. Um, they name them. They name them after like the actual property address themselves, which um, don't have an online footprint, which makes it even more difficult for us to confidently categorize these as financialized landlords. And another of them also use uh, numbered companies um, in order to acquire these properties. Um, and because we don't have an unlimited budget, we can't do, you know, corporate searches for hundreds of numbered companies to, to find out, you know, whether these were financialized landlords. So we, you know, um, we argue that this is most likely an undercount. But one of the um, key findings about, you know, in examining this transaction data, uh, we found that um, race wasn't playing so much um, of um, so much in terms of 
uh, an impact on the strategy in the acquisition strategies of these particular or of all um, landlords. Um, but in fact, what we found was that income was playing a huge factor in where um, these types of landlords were acquiring properties and where we um, set up, um, um, we linked our transactions data to um, demographic data and where we're looking at household after-tax income and where we broke down, broke up our after-tax income into four deciles of um, looking at the bottom 25% of DAs um, 25 to 50%, uh, 50% and 50 to 75 and the top 25% of DAs. Um, and, in, and in looking at household after tax, inc- median after tax income, we found that um, over 75% of the units that were acquired um, by all landlord types occurred in DAs in where the median after tax household income was under $81,000. Um, and even for some landlords, we found that um, these numbers are even higher for companies like Western Income Properties, Main Street, uh, Starlight Investment, CapRead, and where um, their proportion of units that were acquired in these DAs were upwards um, um, of 80% or even higher. Uh, we also saw um, acquisitions of um, 90, where these these particular geographies represented 90% of their uh, portfolio acquisition. So we saw a direct targeting in, in where uh, these particular landlords were targeted in their acquisition strategies in low to moderate income um, uh, DAs. Um, and so um, those were some of the key findings that we did find. And we also uh, were able to acquire um, 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 above rental increase data through an FOI request to the residential tenancy branch um, and we found that of the ARIs that have been um, granted to date, um, financialized landlords account for uh, 40% of those transactions um, that have been granted to date. And those are based on the number of units that uh, are estimated number of units that would be potentially impacted um, by these particular um, above rental increases. Um, so what are above rental increases? So this was introduced in 2021 by the, the province of British Columbia, in which sort of mirrors um, Ontario's above guideline rental increases um, and essentially allows a landlord to transfer any capital expenditure or the cost of any capital expenditure put into the property and transfer them down to the tenants um, um, where the rents would increase to a maximum of nine year, uh, uh, maximum of nine percent spread out over three years, um, and which are not inclusive of the provincial guideline increase. And so um, we argue that these particular uh, policies could be used as a revenue generating tools for uh, financialized landlords. Well. Amazing work. Uh, so interesting. And I, I encourage anyone, if you're going to, and you should go to the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness Conference, uh, sign up for this and find out this and much, much more from three brilliant people who are doing important and impactful work. If people want to check out this work, I don't know if they can yet, but if they do or they want to see the other work that um, you're doing for the Hogan's Alley Society, where do they go? Yeah, they go to the websites, and so it's organzalisociety.org, but it's not yet been public at the moment, but we do hope to make it public just before the CAEH conference in November. But they should just be on the lookout, yeah, organzalisociety.org. And and would Hogan's Alley Society be on all, like, uh, social media as well? Can people Yeah, we are also on Instagram, Organzali, Twitter, and Facebook, yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, I thank you so much for your time, your passion, your thought uh, for bringing this work work forward. Let's hope it results in some major action. Um, So appreciated. Thanks for joining. And listen, we hope to see you again on the way home. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. 
And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.